Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the book of Colossians, and here the team will be looking at Colossians 1, 15 through 20 or so, specifically looking at the Christ hymn. We are a little over a week away from our regional course here in Birmingham, Alabama on creation. For more information about that regional course, which will be a Friday night and a Saturday, there's a link in the show notes for information and registration. Also coming up, we have our Easter intensive course with Wes Baker on missions. And looking ahead, be sure to check out our link for our Theopolitan Ministry Conference, which will feature talks by Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, Trevor Lawrence, and others. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts discussing Colossians chapter 1. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is behind the scenes uh, recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out so that it can be delivered to you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, we're at the beginning stages of a series of podcasts on Paul's letter to the Colossians. We've done a couple of podcasts on Paul in general. We looked at some recent developments in Pauline studies. We talked at uh, some length about epistle as a form of writing and a form of revelation or what that means for Paul's mission and uh, how we're to read the epistles and how we're to understand what's going on in the early church. And in the last couple of episodes, we started to plunge into the letter itself, and we've gotten through the first uh, 12 or 13 verses, I guess, in the opening episode. It's it's uh, it's slow going as it always is in Paul. There's uh, It's densely put together, and uh, we want to try to tease out as much as we can as we as we go through this. Now, let me start out by picking up a comment that James made in a previous episode, maybe the last one. I don't remember which one it was, but he made the observation that uh, Colossians, although you can have, you can recognize different themes and different topics that Paul is dealing with, they're not neatly separated from each other, and it's a fairly seamlessly written letter. Now, one thing flows into another in a uh, fairly a fairly seamless and smooth fashion. And one hint of that, as I was looking over the over the uh, passage that we worked through last time, notice that uh, there's a there's a kind of inclusio around verses three through twelve. You can say that that's a distinct section of Colossians. Where I'm I'm in chapter one. Paul begins by saying, "We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ," and then at the end, after he's uh, described the things that he's giving thanks for with the Colossians, and also begun to describe the prayer that he's praying on their behalf, that ends in verse 12 with the result of his prayers is that the Colossians will join Paul in giving thanks to the Father. So that uh, 3 through 12 is bracketed by this reference to thanksgiving. In both cases, the thanksgiving is to the Father, uh, and uh, there's there's a kind of expansion of thanksgiving. Paul's own thanksgiving is what's at the beginning of the section, and that that kind of reverberates out into the thanksgiving that the Colossians are going to offer to the Father for bringing them into the inheritance of the saints in light. Uh, I think Jeff also pointed out in that section, there's a kind of, we, we talked a good bit about the, the uh, Trinitarian structure. Uh, Alistair pointed this out, that uh, there's a Trinitarian substructure or there's a Trinitarian grammar going on here at the beginning of the letter, as there is often in Paul's letters. 
And Jeff pointed out there's a, there's a kind of chiastic movement in the naming of the three persons. Uh, he gives thanks to God, the Father, Lord Jesus Christ, since he heard of the faith in Christ Jesus. And then uh, that section ends, that uh, Thanksgiving ends in verse 8 with a reference to love in the Spirit. So you have Father, Jesus, and the Spirit. And then in beginning of verse 9, Paul begins to talk about his prayer. And his prayer is that they would be filled with all knowledge and spiritual wisdom. That's wisdom that comes from the Spirit. So uh, verse 8 refers to the love of the Spirit. Verse 9 refers to the wisdom that comes from the Spirit. Verse 10 talks about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's normally kurios or Lord in Paul's letters refers to the Lord Jesus. And then that section ends, as I said, in verse 12 with giving thanks to the Father. So you have Father, Jesus, the Spirit, spiritual wisdom, walking it worthy of the Lord, and then giving thanks to the Father. So you have a kind of chiastic arrangement of the references to Father, Son, and Spirit. But getting back to the point I started with, despite that, you can see a kind of you can see a kind of order there. You can see a kind of arrangement that doesn't uh, that that uh, as a fairly neat structure going on in verses three through twelve. But then James's point was that as Paul goes on, there's no indication that he's finished a thought, really, and he's moving on to something else. Verse 13 begins with a a relative pronoun, who, and it's talking about the Father, giving thanks to the Father who delivered us, who delivered us from the domain of darkness. So verse 13 is a continuation, really, verse 12, even though we've had this apparent closure in the structure. Verse 13 ends with a reference to the Son, and then uh, verse 14 is in whom we have redemption. Now it's talking about the Son. And uh, James pointed out last time, or uh, whenever this was in one of our previous episodes, uh, that what's called the Christ hymn in verses 15 through 20 actually also begins with the relative pronoun, who. So instead of being discrete statements or discrete sections, uh, you can see a kind of structure going on there. But then what follows is immediately linked to that in a series of relative clauses. Give thanks to the Father who delivered us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom, that is, in the Son, we have redemption, who is the image of the invisible God. That's the Son, again, that Paul's talking about. Uh, and one of the things we can, one of the things I can, I think uh, we, we can draw from this, and I, I think this was James's point at the time, or one of them, is some doubt about the, uh, the distinctness of the Christ hymn. Uh, that's, the Christ hymn, that is uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, is often seen as a, uh, as a distinct section in a poetic form, some have suggested even that this was pre-existing, that when, when uh, this letter was being read in the Colossian church, that it would have been recognized by the people, and they might even have begun to recite it along with the reader, or maybe even begun to sung it because it was a well-known song. But the way it's integrated into the text um, casts some doubt on that, on that theory, that it has this kind of independent standing. It's certainly possible that Paul could have integrated some kind of pre-existing material, pre-existing poem into his letter but the the thing is the thing is so integrated and so uh so seamlessly uh put together that uh, that again casts some doubt on the on the separateness of that section that's a lengthy way of reiterating a point that James made much more concisely a, a couple episodes ago but i think it i think it's important to to see that as we're as we're moving through this that uh instead of sometimes paul has topics that he talks about and then he explicitly moves on to another topic and then explicitly moves on to another topic but that's not the way he's writing Colossians, and Colossians is much more, much more flowing through um, from one from one topic to another without a, a clear demarcation of where one ends and another begins.
I was going to ask you guys what you made of this idea that versus 15 onwards is actually a hymn. As I was thinking about it, I was thinking, well, on the one hand, it doesn't matter so much. But then I was also thinking that there are some pretty weird conclusions you can arrive at if you put certain views together. So I think that perhaps a couple of weeks ago, it would have been now we were talking about various people who think that there is this evolution in Paul's views and in Paul's Christology and people who kind of buy into that often say that these verse 15 onwards is um, evidence of a high Christology and therefore um, a late Christology. Um, But that then becomes pretty weird if what's an unusually high Christology for Paul turns out to be a hymn composed by someone else in in the church, you know, was Paul sort of lagging behind in his theology a bit. So um, I I wondered what you sort of made of the idea that it is a hymn anyway. Yeah, that that's a good way to put it. I think James, that was that's always been my question when I've read commentators on this that he, somehow Paul's incorporating a, a hymn from somewhere else. I'm like, well, who else would have written this? Uh, this is so Pauline, and wh- whether it's well, for, in some ways, surely it is the result of his development of his understanding of Jesus and everything. But I can't imagine someone else writing this. This is this is so distinctively Pauline. Well, this doesn't address the question of the hymn per se, but I, it was, uh, I noticed uh, in the verses that just preceded, uh, verses 13 and 14, Paul is talking about the Father who delivered us from the domain of darkness or the authority of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the setup, and then uh, that leads into Paul's expansion on the identity of Jesus. And just uh, doing some easy concordance searches, it, uh, I noticed that uh, that summary of what's been done for us, deliverance from darkness, transferred in the kingdom of the beloved son, redemption, forgiveness of sins, is very similar to what Paul describes in one of the, his trials in Acts 26. This is one of the places in Acts where Paul is summarizing what he received in the heavenly vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he says that Jesus has commissioned him to, he'll deliver him from the Jews and from the Gentiles. And then this is the, this is the purpose for which he's sending him, verse 18 of Acts 26, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. So we have that change from darkness to light, as we have in Colossians 1, from the dominion of Satan to God, another transfer of authority, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins, which is just the same phrase that's in Colossians 1, and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And that inheritance is, uh, has been referred to in a couple of verses earlier in verse 12. The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So you have a cluster of terms that Paul uses here just before the Christ hymn, so-called Christ hymn, uh, that uh, in Paul's telling were revealed immediately to him as soon as he encountered Jesus. And this is his commission. So that this is not something that he comes to and is developing later. At least those verses uh, are things that he, you know, as soon as he knows Jesus, he knows his commission is to do exactly this. That uh, statement by Paul in Acts 26 also illumines verse 13. Uh, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Sometimes Commentators will talk about uh, that being the darkness of paganism, but it includes Judaism as well. Um, There's a kind of darkness that has descended on not just the Gentiles, but also the first century Jews. 
Yeah, and and I mean, in the context of Paul's conversion, the darkness that descends on him, the blindness from which he's delivered into new light. And I, and I think I wonder, too, if the darkness and light isn't just an evil, good kind of contrast, but early, late kind of contrast. So darkness, uh, creation begins in darkness and yields to light, evening and then morning, and old covenant and then new covenant. So you start out in relative darkness and then the light dawns. So I, I think there's a, perhaps various overlapping ways to take that contrast, but darkness, yeah, I think you're right, doesn't, uh, doesn't just mean paganism. The question of how to interpret um, or at least understand verses 15 to 20, I suppose, arises in part from the density and the almost poetic structure that it has. C.F. Burney, followed by N.T. Wright, have argued that it is a reflection and an unpacking of various possible meanings of the Hebrew term Bereshit, with which the whole of the scriptures begin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And so it's taking the first meaning as Christ is the firstborn in verse 15. In verse 17, he's supreme. In verse, eight, in verse 18, he's the head. And in verse um, later in verse 18, again, he's the beginning. And those meanings together are different facets of the term with which the scriptures begin. And this is a meditation then upon the opening verses of the scripture in much the same way as we have in something like um, John chapter one, verse one, or um, the other beginnings of the gospels that allude to the account of Genesis and relate it to Christ. What is happening then is a resituation of the creation account within what we could call the Christological monotheism, that Christ is the one through whom all creation occurs. And if that sort of dense poetic reflection is coming in the midst of a passage that has a sort of density to it, but this is an elevated des density. Um, it might seem to be a pre-existing element, whether composed by Paul or somewhere, someone else. It's very clearly in line with his theology more generally, but that poetic character maybe suggests that it has an integrity of its own. If I could just uh, pile on that, uh, I don't think this, this proves one way or the other, or really is evidence one way or the other of whether it's a pre-existing poem, but it it does have a, it seems to me it has a pretty clear structure. I'm basing this partly on N.T. Wright's analysis, where he uh, distinguishes four sections. Uh, two of them, the first and the, the last, begin with the relative pronoun who. Who is the image of the invisible God? That's verse 15. And then in the middle of uh, verse, uh, middle of verse 18, who is the beginning? Who is the RK? That's the beginning of the last section. So both of those begin with the relative pronoun. And then in between, you have uh, he himself, you have the word altos, that's emphatic addition to just the, the third person singular verb. But then not only do you have that basic ABBA structure, you have relative pronouns. Grammatically, it's an ABBA structure, relative pronouns on either end with the, the altos estin, uh, he himself is in the middle. But it seems to me you're following basically a, a, the, the two frame sections are basically following a similar Sequence. They're not identical by any means, but we move from who is the image of the invisible God. He's called the firstborn of creation. That's in verse 15. Then it talks about the all, the all things that were created by him and includes a list of things beginning with heavens and the earth. And then it has this list of four things, weather thrones or weather dominions, weather rulers, weather authorities. 
The section that begins in verse 18, who is the beginning, uh, that has a similar structure. So who is the beginning matches who is the who is the image. Again, he's called the firstborn, but now he's called the firstborn from the dead, not firstborn of creation. So we've moved from the original creation into uh, the recreation section. We have all things again mentioned, tapanta, all things. Uh, here they're being not created, but reconciled. But that matches what, what Paul said about creation earlier on. And then the, that section concludes in verse 20 with uh, earth and heaven, the same uh, two realms that are mentioned in verse 16, but in reverse order. So we begin with a creation of heavens and earth, and then we end with a reconciliation of earth and heaven. And we again have this weather, weather structure at verse 20, weather things on heaven, things on earth, weather things in heaven. So I think, you, yeah, you have a, a not only a, it's dense in terms of its content, but it's very deliberately structured uh, to be in this kind of parallel, in this kind of parallel pattern. If this is, as Alistair notes, some sort of reflection on creation in Genesis 1, it's fascinating to me that um, the son here is the firstborn of all creation. Um, and that being, I think, a reference to the fact that creation is his inheritance. He's the one for whom creation was created. And though that that's also said at the end of verse 16, not only were all things created through him, but also for him. Um, that that's a fascinating gloss on the purpose of creation uh, so that all of creation is brought into being for the sun uh, as a gift to the sun, so to speak. And, that Trinitarian kind of explanation for creation is, is sometimes missing. This, um, this also fits, of course, with Paul's theology of the church as the bride, the bride of humanity brought to the Son, and then the Son, of course, then giving that bride to the, to the Father as a daughter-in-law, so to speak. But all of that, I mean, it's, it just... It, it, <laughs> It gives us so many possibilities. It presents us with all sorts of interesting and new ways of looking at um, creation and the purpose for creation. Yeah, as good old Edwardsian, uh, Jonathan Edwards said that the purpose of creation is so that the father created so, in order to have a, a bride for his son who could be introduced into the triune family. It's fascinating to see the way that when Paul makes these sorts of statements, so often the weight is placed upon prepositions, as here we see in in, by, for, through, and the one act of creation is attributed to um, Christ in the entire act, but in a particular manner. Um, and so there is a sense of the inseparable work of the Trinity in creating and Christ's activity being um, divine, yet personally distinct. It's a unitary act, but there is an inseparable work of the three persons according to their um, personhood. And so everything is from the Father. It doesn't say all things are from the Son, but all things are through the Son. And ultimately, all things are in the unity of the Spirit. And, and so you have a sense of the triune character of the act of creation in which 
the creation as a whole is attributed to each of the persons. Just picking up on Jeff's comment about the idea of uh, creation being for uh, Christ himself, that would obviously undercut a lot of Gnostic ideas if those ideas were floating around in, in Colossae at the time. Um, knowing Christ is literally knowing the very one for whom all creation was formed. Then all these ideas of sort of add-ons and, and secret knowledge just have to go by the wayside, you know. Yeah, you can't. The, uh, Jesus is unsurpassable. The Son is unsurpassable. You can't. You can't find any deeper meaning or a purpose in creation than in Him. I'm wondering about specifics uh, of uh, what Paul says here about the Son and what He creates. Um, there's an eightfold list uh, in verse 16, uh, and it seems to be grouped together in two sets of four. I'm, that's, or maybe it's two and two and four, but. Heaven and earth seem to be the realms, visible and invisible seem to be somewhat uh, a repetition and maybe an inverted repetition. The visible things are the earthly things, the invisible things are the heavenly things, or maybe that's a different different contrast. But then uh, the kind of controversial part is the last four, uh, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, which perhaps were to take those as among the invisible things or among the heavenly things. Uh, there's, of course, discussion about whether those refer to rankings of angelic beings, rankings of spiritual beings. Uh, are they uh, to be understood as more abstract, more abstractly uh, as power, just powers or authority structures? I think that given the way that Paul uses this language elsewhere, it does seem like there's he's attributing a certain kind of personhood to these. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against uh, spiritual forces in heavenly places. So there's an uh, these are enemies against whom we fight, and he uses some of the same language there. But so it, it does seem to me he's talking about some kind of angelic or demonic powers uh, that I would assume are not wholly wholly separated from the earthly earthly powers that stand in enmity to Christ and and stand as enemies of the church. Uh, but it, you all have any any additional thoughts on that, especially the last those last four things? What what do you, what is Paul referring to, uh, and uh, in what sense are they things created by Christ? I only have what might be a fairly basic thought, which is just that those things are for Christ in the sense that the positions of power and the um, uh, aspects of glory that they represent are for Christ. We um, uh, went through. Daniel, not so long ago, didn't we? And uh, we saw that there that the image of the Gentile um, kingdom, the Colossus, does have a, a glory to it. You know, it has a gold and uh, uh, a, a silver, and, and it has strength and all these things, even when possessed by unregenerate rulers. And um, as I see, you know, the, the, all those thrones and, and dominions are, are for Christ, and their purpose is to give glory to him and and ultimately they they will do that they will be um uh, redeemed and incorporated into christ's kingdom another thing that we discussed in looking through daniel is the importance of shadowy angelic figures behind the great empires we thought for instance about the prince of persia and other ways in which these empires are not just personified but we see some spiritual agency um acting behind them and then the struggle against those agencies um, and the work of Michael at the end. And here, I, 
I would interpret these thrones, powers and dominions and authorities in that sort of light, that these are the um, spiritual and demonic, and in some cases, demonic authorities that are behind the nations and their various powers. Um, these would be, in many cases, worshipped as false gods. And what we have ultimately is all of those powers are going to have to either bow or be subdued by and pacified by Christ, ultimately by means of his cross. By saying that, Elsa, you're not bracketing human authorities, dominions, rulers, are you? You're just saying that behind them were these angelic powers, angelic um, authorities? Yeah, so I'd see an example of this in um, Revelation 12 and 13, where you have the land beast, you have the sea beast that is the sort of bigger form of that. And then behind that, you have the dragon and his angels. And so there are these authorities on different levels, some of them immediately apparent to us, but then others that are shadow powers behind those. I think we get a similar sense of this as we go through something like the book of Genesis, and we see lots of situations where there is a sort of satanic attack upon the bride, but yet it's through Pharaoh or through Abimelech and later on in Exodus through Pharaoh again. And it's recognizing that Satan is active as the serpent in those situations, the great dragon behind the powers, but also that there are these earthly powers that correspond to his agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that helps. That makes sense, um, especially given that these thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities were all these things created through him and for him. It seems as if Paul then ends uh, in verse 20 with um, these, all these powers, all these authorities, all things being reconciled to himself finally, whether on earth or in heaven, because the cross has made peace so that um, what, was, what was broken and twisted and bent and separated in some sense from Christ has now been restored to him. Right. I mean, I, I wonder, Jeff, if we've got some sort of Exodus-like motif underlying a, a lot of this. Just going back to verse um, 12, there is this notion of the saints receiving an inheritance, a translation from a domain of darkness to light and re redemption in verse 14. And the Exodus is, is at least lots of those things, isn't it? It is that translation from a kingdom of... Uh, of darkness um, to light, the Exodus, I think, is is very clearly portrayed. I mean, Egypt is enveloped in darkness, but it's portrayed as a conquest over the gods of Egypt um, in Exodus and in Numbers, and and then its fall is spoken of quite apocalyptically in the Psalms, in sort of dragon or sea monster um, imagery, and obviously. Later on in Colossians, in, in the next chapter, we're going to get this image of Christ disarming. Um, I can't remember what the term is. Is it rulers there and, and triumphing, leading them to an open shame? And I wonder if some of that is inherent in the idea of Christ as the firstborn here. In the Exodus, we get Israel referred to as the, the firstborn. She's the, the head, not the tail, and the one who is due to inherit Canaan. And Pharaoh is a usurper. And in the Exodus, Israel inherits what's rightfully hers. And I guess here, Jesus, you could see is that the firstborn, the, the perfect Israel who will inherit all creation and not just 
Canaan, but what is rightfully um, his. And we'll do that by a progressive driving out of these dark and, and shadowy um, pharaoh-like powers. Thanks, James. I, I really like that. That's uh, that's really helpful. Um, I think that I go back to your comments and Jeff's comments. I'm just kind of reiterating what you all said, but I think it is important to see whatever whatever these rulers and authorities are, and however estranged they may be, uh, the whole the whole thrust of this section is uh, these things that are created for Christ will be reconciled. All things are reconciled. That uh, uh, some form of pas or tapanta is used eight times in verses fifteen through twenty, and the eighth time is verse twenty through him to reconcile to himself all things. So uh, the, the ultimate culmination, the, the, the eighth of the eightfold reference to all things is the reconciliation of all things. So it's not that these things, these things are created for Christ. Clearly there's something that's been estranged from Christ because he has to reconcile through death and through the blood of the cross. Uh, but the ultimate goal is not for these things to remain alienated, but for them to be subdued to Christ uh, and to be reconciled, which, I mean, we can, we can uh, say, you know, that's uh, there's a there's a reconciliation of heaven. There's a reconciliation of things on earth. If these are referring to powers that are involved and in, kind of in with and under political authorities, then we also have a vision of nations and and peoples being reconciled together through the blood of the cross and reconciled with God in Christ and also reconciled to one another. So there's a I think there's a, an important political vision that's being uh, proposed here. Although I, I think that the terms probably refer to these spiritual powers, but insofar as they're involved in political authorities and the exercise of political authority, there is a vision of a reconciled, uh, of reconciled international order. And would it be helpful, accurate to say that that reconciliation is definitive right now in Christ? If, like if you look at verse 17, He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. I've often taken this next chi, the next and, as an even, even as he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might, in everything he might be preeminent, so that all things hold together right now because Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And he's the beginning of this reconciliation of all things. It starts with him, it flows out with him, and it, he will be preeminent in everything. Yeah, that seems right to me that the, I mean, if, if I understand what you're saying, that the, the church is the location where this cosmic reconciliation has begun. Is that, is that the, is yes. that a way to put your point? Yeah. Yes. It's, um, I mean, Paul says something similar at the end of Ephesians 1, remember. Yeah that uh, he's put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church or with reference to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The same kind of language is used here in uh, Colossians 1, 18 and 19. And I think you see that in the, in the progression of um, Paul's argument in here in Colossians 1. Uh, he has this uh, vision and this promise of reconciliation of all things to himself through the blood of the cross, and then uh, turns his attention to the experience of the Colossians, beginning of verse 21. You were formerly alienated, but now you have been reconciled in his fleshly body through death. So there's the reconciliation that he's been talking about has a concrete reality 
you know, on the ground reality in the uh, formation of the, of the Colossian church. Right. And that's going to flow right through the epistle, isn't it? Paul is later going to be talking about um, the need for the different members of the body to get on and talk about putting on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so I see this idea of Christ being the head in which all things come together as uh, uniting the various uh, people that he's going to talk about, Greek and Jew, slave and free, you know, fathers not to uh, provoke their children, etc. you know, that, that holding uh, together, yes, has these cosmic things, but comes down all the way to the grassroots level. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, that's exactly how I'm reading it. I think that's, I mean, that, that gives a... Um, dignity and a scope and a largeness to the everyday life of Christians in families, the everyday life of Christians in work relationships, everyday life of Christians in the family, in the church. What we're doing when we are loving and forgiving one another and living in harmony is we're participating already in that ultimate reconciliation of all things in Christ. And uh, we're What's, what's happening in those very, as you say, very concrete on the ground kind of settings, uh, that's in a, uh, not, just, not just a picture, but that's an actual participation already in this much larger agenda that God has for the world. And it's, it, that's the, that is the way that we share in that, in, is all, in all these apparently mundane everyday uh, activities of you know, fathers not exasperating their children and husbands and wives getting along and Masters treating their slaves with dignity, and uh, children honoring their parents. Those seem like very small things, but they're part of the universe-wide reconciliation that God is bringing to pass. That concern to center everything upon the figure of Christ and the cosmic redemption that he is affecting really is characteristic of Paul, and I think so often is something that is neglected within subsequent treatments of salvation where so often everything gets ordered around the individual who was saved, particularly within modern treatments of the subject. And as a result, we miss something of the glory of the way in which we're called out into a, a drama that far exceeds us. And so there is, on the one hand, the redemption and the development of the self, but also you're brought out onto the stage of the grandest stage of history. This is what history is all about as we see in places like Ephesians chapter one, and also in this particular section of Colossians. I, I often think about this in terms of something like the Lord of the Rings, where you have characters that are called outside of their door to go on an adventure that leads to them being transformed. But that adventure is not primarily about them, no matter how powerfully it transforms them. Rather, it's uh, an adventure in which the whole fate of the world is at stake. And in the same way here, the centre of the story is Christ, and it's our union with Christ that gives us our significance within the story. It's the fact we've been chosen in him, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, or the fact that we are in him as who is the true image of the invisible God. We are restored to true image-bearing as we are restored in him. What do you all make of the uh, phrasing of verse 19 uh, in the the Greek uh, doesn't have a reference to the father. And um, my New American Standard has the word father's possessive added there. And it's, it reads, it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The Greek is 
all the fullness was pleased to dwell in him or something like that. So correct interpolation, is that talking about the, the fullness of the father's life, the fullness of the father's, the father himself dwelling in the son? Is that, what's, is that what it's referring to? Or would fullness, pleroma, perhaps be the fullness of everything that's been described as things created by Christ, things reconciled in Christ? And so he's the one in whom all the pleroma of all things, heaven on earth and, you know, things visible and invisible. He's the one in whom all those things dwell. My own thought would be that it's connected to chapter two, verse nine, which is talking again about Christ in him, all the fullness of deity. And that's, that's an explicit reference to deity dwells in bodily form, same kind of statement. And that's an explicit reference to the fullness of God dwelling. But is that how you're taking verse 19 also? It was certainly how I took it. If that's, if that's any consolation. Um, I, I had a question if I, if I could just, jump back to verse 18 quickly um i was wondering what you guys thought or how you thought this um verse portrayed the church in particular um so well a couple of questions so christ is the head of the body um i wonder in what way we're meant to think of that i mean the church elsewhere is likened to a whole body itself and different people would have roles within it, e.g. being the eye um, or, or, or the ear or, or, or something like that. So I wonder about head and body there. And I wonder in what sense we're meant to see the church as, or to what extent we're meant to see the church as, as new here. So, you know, he's the beginning, um, comma, the firstborn from the dead. Now, when beginning has been used um or the notion of beginning has been used verse 15 onwards. It's then before all things. Um, but here kind of being the firstborn from the dead seems to be connected to the beginning of the church in some way. I think it gets problematic if you want to uh, view the church as too um, discontinuous from what's preceded it. But at the same time, there does seem to be this idea of newness here. So, uh, I'd be grateful to know how you're parsing some of that. Maybe we could think of it in terms of the celebration of first fruits um, connected with Christ's resurrection, and then Pentecost as the what comes after that, the um, seven times seven, the um, 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. It's the fulfillment of the meaning of first fruits as what was originally presented in a raw form is made into these um, leavened loaves. And so the church is that leavened loaf formed by the Holy Spirit to be a new entity. It's the people of God, but the people of God in a, a radically new form. And that sense of being the firstborn from the dead, I think, also gets back into the relationship between the womb and the tomb that we see from the very beginning of Scripture, that there is this expectation for instance in Isaiah that the earth will give birth to its dead and Christ is the one who opens the barren womb of the tomb so that it might give birth and that Zion might have her children and that event of the resurrection is depicted in birth-like forms in various places the parallels between the beginning and end of the book of Luke for instance or the way in which we see Christ entering the heavenly temple 40 days after his resurrection, much as 40 days after his birth, he's presented in the earthly temple. And so that parallel seems to present this as a new beginning 
from which the church's existence can then be seen to arise. The church finds its existence as um, grounded in not just being the people of God as such, but being the people of the resurrection, a new body that has been formed for that reason. And Christ as the head also seems to be looking looking out. Um, We often think about head as the one who tells the body what to do. But the head is also that which orders the body and orders it out into the world and rules is the preeminent one. And it seems to me that that's part of what's going on here. Christ's authority over everything is an authority exercised for the sake and the upbuilding and the ordering of the church. Yeah, my, my thoughts would be similar to what Alistair has just said. I think with, with the head, you have, you have different kinds of overlapping images that I think uh, Paul is using when he uses that terminology. Uh, sometimes it's head of the body, like the the top of the body. The that doesn't you can't you can't press that as as you're pointing out, James. You can't press it because then Jesus is the head, but he's an eyeless head because he needs members that are the eyes or his ears or whatever. So the, that that runs aground if you try to press that too far. The other context where head is used is uh, head head of the bride, who is one. Uh, one spirit with him and kind of one flesh relationship with him. So I think those two kind of move back and forth. And I wonder if, I wonder if the church as bride might be part of the imagery here. I mean, we, we come down to the end of, we come down to verse 22 and talks about what, what the point of this reconciliation is. The reconciliation is so that Jesus might present you before him as holy and blameless beyond reproach. That's, that's language that Paul uses in Ephesians to talk about the holy and blameless character of the church without blemish, who is the bride, the blemishless bride. So I, I wonder, I think it, the head, the head imagery goes back and forth the, on the first point. I think James, your point about Jesus as the true Israel, I think would be the key to understanding what's going on there. Uh, Jesus is the firstborn. He's the true Israel, the one who's going to inherit but as firstborn, he dies, and in him, Israel dies. The people of God dies in him. He's the firstborn from the dead. So there's this newness, yes. It's, a, it's a, an Israel that's been born from the grave, and the body, is, the body and bride are united to him and have this new life and this new existence because of that. I wanted to go back to verse, uh, verse 19, uh, where I raised the question about the fullness. I mean, it seems like the logic, if you connect uh, 119 to two nine, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in him. Uh, and then you connect that further with uh, what Paul says in Ephesians, when it talks about the, the same pleroma, or appears to talk about the sl- same pleroma that is, um, let me get the right verses. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to uh, comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and depth and height of the knowledge of God, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's uh, Ephesians 3.19. So you've got this kind of, you put these pieces together. The Son is the one in whom the Father is pleased to dwell, the fullness of the Father. The fullness of God is dwells in the Son. The fullness of God dwells in the Son in bodily form, Ephesians uh, or Colossians 2 tells us. Uh, and then Christ dwells in us, and so the fullness of God dwells in us. Uh, that seems to be the, you put these pieces together from these different verses, and it seems that that's where it's, that's where it's heading. So there's, a, there's one way to reinforce the point that Jeff made earlier, that the church is the place where this cosmic reconciliation is taking place. And it's taking place there because the fullness of God is dwelling in Christ who dwells in the church. 
who dwells in us. And so uh, it's, it's both a, this, um, it, has, it has this kind of eschatological dimension to it. This is the place where the ultimate cosmic reconciliation is already taking place. And it has this, again, loosely speaking, it has this kind of deification element to it that we, the church is the place where the fullness of God dwells on earth. Someday God will be all in all, uh, and the whole creation will be filled with the fullness of God. That's not true yet, but the church is the place where the fullness of God already dwells through Christ and through the spirit already dwells among human beings. What if there's another layer of meaning here, Peter? You mentioned earlier when you first brought this up, the possibility that the fullness here that dwells in Christ, since Hathias is not in the original text, uh, that's added, and it seems to be proper to add that given the flow of the argument here. But what if in him all the fullness refers to just everything in, in, in the created realm, everything that um, all of creation uh, and all these thrones and dominions and rulers. So the flow would be that in everything he might be preeminent and it's in him that all this fullness dwells and through him, he is reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, so that he becomes like the concentration point, the fullness of God's creation and passing through death and resurrection becoming the firstborn from the dead, he is, well, he is the one in him, everything gets reconciled. And then he becomes uh, his, his humanity, his created humanity becomes the promise, the prophecy of the reconciliation that will come in time. I don't know. It's a possibility. I, I you, you, when you mentioned that, that, that made me think along those lines. Yeah. Um, but maybe maybe there's maybe it's layered like that. Maybe that also yeah. fits. Yeah, I, th- I could certainly live with that. I think you, you bring in two, uh, Colossians two nine, and you still have Christ, Jesus as the one in whom deity, the fullness of deity, dwells. So it's Jesus would not just be the concentration point for all created things. He reconciles all created things because they're all contained, as it were, within Him. But it's also the reconciliation of God and man in Him because He's to put it crudely, he's a container for both God and for all creation. Right. Good. No, I, I, I like that. When we're thinking about Christ as the head in this passage, there seems to be, on the one hand, we tend to think about head-body relationship as a spatial metaphor, but there's also that intertwined with a temporal metaphor, the first fruits or firstborn, and then those that come afterwards. And we see, I think, a marriage of those two in Ephesians chapter 4, where It speaks about speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Christ is the principle of growth, but also the end, the one to whom we're to grow up into, so that when we see him, as John speaks about in his first epistle, we might be like him, that marriage of the temporal and the spatial aspects of that those metaphors i think is important to recognize here yeah i think you're right that that uh, the temple imagery is is um it feels like it's operating uh underneath the surface toward the end of the section that we've been looking at in verses 21 through 23 again the colossians have been alienated hostile in mind evil deeds they've been reconciled 
And the purpose of that reconciliation, I mentioned already in verse 22, is so that they can be presented holy and blameless beyond reproach. That's language that's applied to the bride in Ephesians 5. But it's it's more typically language of sacrifice, language of priests. It's the, the blameless word is the word that's used all the way through Leviticus for the in the Septuagint for the uh, uh, it translated without blemish. So the goal is to present Colossians as holy and blameless. And a couple a couple things occur to me. One is without blemish is the requirement for an offering that is not yet offered. It's not the it's not the it doesn't it isn't used to describe the character or the status of something that's already been offered. So if we take the, if we take that language and think of it strictly, then what Jesus has done, what Jesus has done is qualified us to be presented as offerings so that we can then present ourselves as living sacrifices, as Paul says in Romans 12. So what he does is, is qualify us for a life of self-sacrifice. Uh, the, the picture perhaps is not that we've been uh, already sacrificed in him, but the word through his through his own death, he's qualified for self-sacrifice. The other thought is that uh, there's a kind of priestly dimension of this. We're presented the the uh, the verb to present means to uh, it's a it's a uh, stand before to bring something to stand before. It's the word that's used in Deuteronomy to describe the standing of priests before the Lord. Priests are those who stand to serve the Lord in His house. And what Jesus has done again is to qualify us to stand and serve as uh, those priests who are without blemish and holy, the offerings that we offer are ourselves. So the, you come to this, it comes to the same thing, but it, that I think, I think you're right, uh, Alistair, that, that, that kind of uh, priestly temple framework is, is uh, lurking behind them. The way Paul talks about the goal of our reconciliation. Another possible aspect of this getting into priestly and sacrificial dimensions is the ordering of the sacrifice in places like Leviticus chapter one, where the head is given particular prominence in the sacrifice and priority. Right. So that would give another dimension to what uh, to James's question, the head of the body. He's the beginning. He's the, he's first in everything. He's first in creation. He's first from the dead. He's also first as the head in uh, self-offering. One final kind of interpretive question. Uh, Paul has given this description of Christ and the work of Christ Verse 21 and 22, he's talking about how this has taken root and become real to the Colossians. They're alienated. They're estranged from the commonwealth of Israel. They're now uh, qualified to be brought near and to present themselves. But then verse 23 has this conditionality, this conditional statement. Uh, You are holy and blameless beyond reproach if you continue in the faith and don't move away from the hope that you've heard which has been proclaimed on all creation. So there's this conditionality, this call to perseverance in faith and hope. That's a necessary, we want to call it a condition, but it's necessary to the full realization of what Christ has achieved for us. It's not a once for all punctiliar event. We have been made blameless and holy full stop. That's true. We have been, and we, uh, we will be uh, if we continue in the faith and hope. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm saying that as, as well as it could be said, but I think the, the conditional clause that follows, I think, is important to, to take note of. There are similar statements in Hebrews, for instance, in um, chapter 3, verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house 
if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Yeah, I mean, just looking over the verses from verse 15 onwards, it seems slightly odd that this phrase, he is the image of the invisible God, becomes first. I guess our, our natural inclination might be to order things chronologically. And so you might start by saying Jesus is the firstborn, the one who created all things and is before all things and so forth, and then became the image of the invisible God, um, particularly in the incarnation. And um, I wonder if there's more a, a sort of an order of apprehension here in that you know, Jesus is our first point of contact almost with God in, in that sense. We apprehend him as the image of the invisible God and realise his deity and then apprehend him as, as far more than the earthly Messiah, but as, as the one who's the firstborn of all creation and and, and so forth. Um, and then going through more temporal um, things, we who once were alienated in verse 21 are now reconciled in verse um, 22. And then obviously continuing thing, if indeed we do continue um, in the faith. So I wonder if um, the perspective is, is almost uh, our apprehension and then uh, duties as, as believers. I wonder if that's the ordering principle here. That is an interesting observation that uh, we start in verse 15 with image, which, um, I mean, we, we've got all this creation, explicit references to creation and Jesus as the one in, through, and for whom creation is, is created. But image in that context has more to do with the, you know, the uh, creation of Adam. So it, it's, it is an odd way to start. But yeah, you may be right that it's a matter of uh, order of perception that the uh, Jesus is the firstborn. He's the true Israel. He's the image of the invisible God, which means he's the one who uh, is the, act, the, the full and true Adam. Yeah, of course, that's all true. But in verse 15, it does seem like we have a description of the pre-incarnate son. So even the language of son is, you know, if you're a son, you're made in the image of your father and the firstborn of all creation there is not so much there maybe about his incarnation but about the fact that as son as as image he is going to be the inheritor so you know it's it's similar to uh hebrews 1 where the son is described as the radiance of god's glory and the exact imprint of his being so i mean I'm not, I'm not so sure that the, this is a reference initially to the incarnation, even though, of course, it fits with the incarnation. Um, if you, you remember that book by uh, Philip Hughes on uh, the image, I can't remember the exact name of it, the book, where he argues that, uh, and I think rightfully so, based on lots of passages in the New Testament and Old, that the, Im the original image of God, of course, is the Son. Um, the eternal son and we are created after his image so we're we're created um uh sons created sons and daughters after the image of god who is the eternal son and i I'm just wonder if that's part of what's what's going on here in verse 15 i'm sure that is part of it i, I guess what makes me think of the incarnation in particular isn't so much the the firstborn stuff but the fact that god is uh jesus is the image of the invisible God, i.e. he is what is visible of a, a spiritual and invisible being. 
Yep, that's true too. Yeah, <laughs> 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 um, take your point, Jeff. I think that's a that's a good point. That uh, it's talking about the the son's involvement in creation in the in the early part of that section, and not about his about his incarnation. But uh, maybe this is what James was getting at. But uh, you know, within within the life of the Trinity, there's a certain structure and. The, the persons are not simply identical to each other. And this is part, I think, of what Hebrews is implying. Given the fact of creation, let's say it this way, given the fact of creation, the one by whom the invisible God is made known is, the, is his image. The second person is the one in whom the Father is seen. He's the word by whom the Father is heard. So uh, if we assume the fact of creation, then the Son is the image of the invisible God. Uh, that's true because the son is the one who's, you know, I'm thinking of not creation so much as, you know, well, let's say Genesis 2. Who is it that comes in the spirit of the day into the garden to judge and to call Adam to account? I would say that that is the image of the invisible God, which is the son as uh, Yahweh God. Yahweh Elohim is coming. Uh, that's the son who's coming in as, a, as the visib- visibility of God. So I think that... Um, yeah, incarnation does doesn't seem to fit now that you make that point. But I think that you know the Son is the incarnatable of the persons of the Trinity. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. That that's that's right. Something which occurs to me as we've just been pondering and, and looking over these this sort of list of attributes really um, is just that we've you know we, we've asked is it a hymn and looked at various chiastic structures in it, and it seems to me that this let's call it a, a hymn-like list, just because of its nature, it almost cries out to be memorized and, and just meditated on. And you, you start thinking, you know, w- what is the order of this? How is this second statement building on the the, the first? And it, it just sort of invites reflection and um, pondering insofar that it sort of is just this slightly self-contained um, bit of the um Epistle and personally, I've I've just found it found it hugely helpful just meditating over these um, verses over the last sort of f- few days and and so much of of life it, it is just noise and is a distraction from meditating on um, who Jesus is and and our um, connection to him and and the way in which things subsist in him and um, I think it's just a, a, an aspect of these verses to bear in mind. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.